Hello and welcome to the podcast for the December issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm joined by Alison Rowan from TLN to discuss some of those December highlights. Hi Alison. Hi Richard. Alison, let's start with an article about stroke. It's called the RELY trial. This is a pre-specified sub-analysis of the main RELY trial and this concerns the use of anticoagulation therapy for the prevention of secondary stroke. Tell us about RELY and about this study in particular. So the RELY trial was a randomised control trial published last year that showed that patients with atrial fibrillation who took the anticoagulation therapy dobigatran were less likely to have an ischemic stroke or haemorrhage than patients who took warfarin. And in this new paper, as you say, Richard, the RELY investigators report the results of a pre-specified analysis of the effects of dobigatran on a subgroup of patients with atrial fibrillation who'd had a previous transient ischemic attack or stroke. Thanks for that. So go on, Alison, and tell us, if you would, about uh, the methods and the key results from this uh, subgroup analysis. Okay, so the main RELY trial included over 18,000 patients from 967 centres from around the world, and they were given either 110 or 150 milligrams of dobigatran, or they had warfarin. The subgroup analysis involved about 3,600 patients with previous stroke or transient ischemic attack, with about 1,200 in each of the three treatment groups. As with the results from the main RELY study, the risk of stroke or systemic embolism did not differ between patients on either dose of dobigatran and warfarin. Patients on both doses of dobigatran were less likely to have intracranial bleeding than patients on warfarin, and patients on the lower dose had a lower mortality rate and fewer major bleeding events than patients on warfarin. So Alison, how should these results do clinical practice, do you think? These results emphasise the potential benefits of dobigatran over warfarin for this subgroup of patients who are at high risk of recurrent stroke. But deciding which dose to prescribe can be difficult for treating physicians. Although a direct comparison between the two doses wasn't done, the authors of the paper argue that 150 milligrams of dobigatran might be preferable for this patient group because it may provide better protection against stroke, although they do suggest that some patients who have a higher risk of bleeding might be better off on the lower dose. The authors of the accompanying commentary, however, favour the lower dose for patients with previous stroke or transient ischemic attack because of the lower chance of adverse bleeding events. And these differing views highlight the difficulties in choosing dose, and the article and commentary provide more in-depth discussion of this thorny issue. Thanks, Alison. And next, another article, and this concerns the potential of gene therapy for improving symptoms of Parkinson's disease. This is a phase two study, so tell us first of all what we learned from phase one. Yes, so the phase one study showed that gene therapy with the trophic factor nurturin was safe and well tolerated in patients with Parkinson's disease. And the therapy also seemed to show some promise improving patients' motor function in this initial trial. Thank you. And summarise the methods and results here, Alison. This was a multi-centre, double-blind, sham surgery controlled trial that involved 58 patients with Parkinson's disease. What they did was inject an adeno-associated vector AAV2 carrying the gene for nurturin into the putamen of 38 patients and the remaining 20 received sham surgery. The primary outcome measure was assessment of motor function on the unified Parkinson's disease rating scale at 12 months after treatment and at this time there was no difference between patients who were treated with gene therapy and patients who had sham surgery. But a subgroup of patients who were followed up for 18 months did seem to have some motor improvements as a result of the therapy. There are also treatment benefits for some other secondary outcome measures. Should be noted that serious adverse events were more common in the treated group, with 13 of the 38 treated patients having serious adverse events, mainly related to the surgery, compared with four in the sham surgery group.
Thanks, Alison. It's interesting, this study. Clearly, obviously, the numbers are small because it's phase two. It appears like a negative outcome result, doesn't it? But on the other hand, the authors do comment that they think there's potential. Is that right? If, it, if this gene therapy approach is given in a more targeted way? Yes, that's right. So it's thought that nurturing needs to be transported from the striatum to the substantia nigra to have an effect. And in the patients who had an autopsy in this study, the authors suggest that nurturing expression in a substantia nigra was not sufficient to be beneficial. It was also thought that a follow-up time of more than 12 months might have been needed for nurturing to induce a clinical benefit. So for these reasons, the authors argue that although there was no evidence for a benefit on the primary outcome measure in this study, direct injections into the substantia nigra, perhaps in combination with higher doses in the putamen, might lead to more beneficial effects of this therapy. And what does the comment author say, Alison? The author of the commentary points out that safety issues are yet to be resolved. One of the patients in this study had a glioblastoma, which is likely to have predated the gene therapy. But the potential for growth factors to induce or accelerate tumour development and other potential side effects do need to be assessed in the long term. So these results suggest it would be worth pursuing gene therapy for Parkinson's disease. But the comment author points out that alternative gene therapy strategies, using delivery of three synthesising enzymes through a single vector, for instance, might be more promising. But for these, we'll need to wait for clinical trial evidence. Intriguing stuff. Thanks, Alison. And finally, let's just discuss briefly The Leading Edge, the editorial this month. And you're going to tell us what it's all about. It's all to do with the PPMI. What does that stand for? Tell us about it. So the PPMI stands for the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative. This is a large prospective study involving 20 centres in the USA and Europe that is designed to identify and validate biomarkers, including clinical, imaging and biological markers for Parkinson's disease. The aim is to enrol 400 patients with newly diagnosed Parkinson's disease who have not yet begun treatment and 200 healthy age-matched controls. And the investigators plan to test the most promising biomarkers using advanced brain imaging techniques, blood, urine, CSF and DNA sampling, and also neuropsychiatric and cognitive and motor assessments. What is the expectation here of how PPMI could help, well, two, two obvious areas, clinically and also in terms of research? At present, diagnosis of Parkinson's disease is based purely on clinical symptoms and signs, and progression is measured solely on the basis of clinical symptoms as well. So the hope is that objective biomarkers could provide indicators of risk of developing Parkinson's disease before the onset of symptoms, or assist with diagnosis by providing markers for conversion to clinical disease. They might also help with predicting disease course and identifying different subgroups of patients who might respond differently to treatments. On the research side, a major goal is the identification of a treatment that can halt or reverse disease progression. And trials of disease-modifying therapies currently rely on use of clinical assessments as outcome measures. So they need to include large numbers of patients and last many years to allow monitoring of progression. And even then, the results can be inconclusive. So if biomarkers could be used to select patients who are more likely to respond to the drug being tested, or if they could be used to more accurately track disease progression, the length of trials and numbers of patients needed could be reduced. A crucial aspect of the PPMI approach is that all data and biological specimens will be stored in a central repository available for the research community. In this way, this effort promises to provide a valuable resource that should fuel further academic and industry-led research, and promising candidates identified through these studies could then be validated against the large PPMI dataset. So what's your bottom line conclusion from this initiative? 
This is an ambitious initiative, but on balance, as we say in the leading edge, it should provide a valuable resource for data mining and generating hypotheses for future investigations into biomarkers. And although there are many challenges, we have reason to be optimistic about this. Great. Let's be optimistic. I like optimism. That's good. Alison, many thanks indeed. Those are some of the highlights from the December issue of The Lancet Neurology. Many thanks to Alison Rowan and to you all for listening. We'll see you next time.